Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. As part of our inspiring TED Talk series, spotlighting can't-miss TED Talks and their key takeaways, today I explore Pastor Rick Warren's famous 2006 TED Talk, A Life of Purpose. Welcome back to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I'm happy to be with you again today as we continue our inspiring TED Talk series, spotlighting can't-miss TED Talks and their key takeaways. Today, I'll be exploring Pastor Rick Warren's famous 2006 TED Talk, A Life of Purpose. His book, Purpose Driven Life, has sold more than 30 million copies. The church he pastors, Saddleback Church, has more than 22,000 members. Clearly, Rick Warren understands a few things about leadership. This video is an intimate presentation of his own thoughts and crises around leadership. For anyone who's ever looked at their existence and said, there's got to be more to life than this, will certainly find solace in Warren's 21-minute talk. Now, keep in mind that Pastor Warren is, in fact, a pastor. Uh, And so while much of what he talks about in this TED Talk uh, is religious in nature— and particularly uh, from his Christian uh, worldview, uh, I hope that you'll also understand that much of what he's saying transcends formal and organized religion. Uh, It even transcends traditional notions of spirituality. So I know that I have listeners from all over the world, from different walks of life, different uh, perspectives along the belief or unbelief spectrum, uh, different faith Uh, perspectives, different uh, religious traditions. Uh, I hope you'll take this talk for what it is meant to be, and that is some insights into leadership and some key principles that will help you become a truly remarkable leader, regardless of where you find yourself. Thanks for joining me, and I'll catch you on the flip side of this first clip. I'm often asked, um, you know, what, uh, what surprised you about the book? And I said that I got to write it. I uh, would have never imagined that. Uh, not in my wildest dreams did I think, I don't even consider myself to be an author. And uh, I'm often asked, why do you think so many people have read this? This thing's selling st- still about a million copies a month. And uh, I think it's because spiritual emptiness is uh, a universal disease. I think inside that at some point we put our heads down on the pillow and we go, there's got to be more to life than this. Get up in the morning, go to work, come home, watch TV, go to bed. Get up in the morning, go to work, come home, watch TV, go to bed. Go to parties on weekends. A lot of people say, I'm living. No, you're not living, that's just existing. 
just existing. I really think that there's in this inner desire. I, I do believe what uh, Chris said. I believe that you're not an accident. Your parents may not have planned you, but I believe God did. I think they're accidental parents. There's no doubt about that. I don't think they're accidental kids. And uh, I think you matter. I think you matter to God. I think you matter to history. I think you matter to this universe. And I think that uh, the difference between uh, what I call the survival level of living, the success level of living, and the significance level of living is, do you figure out what on earth am I here for? I meet a lot of people who are very smart and say, but why can't I figure out my problems? And I meet a lot of people who are very successful who say, why don't I feel more fulfilled? Why do I feel like a fake? Why do I feel like I've got to pretend that I'm more than I really am. I think that comes down to this issue of meaning, of significance, of purpose. I think it comes down to this issue of why am I here? What am I here for? Where am I going? These are not religious issues. They're, they're human issues. I, I wanted to tell Michael before he spoke that I, I really appreciate what he does because it makes my life work a whole lot easier as as a pastor, I, I, I do see a lot of kooks. And I have learned that there are kooks in every area of life. Uh, religion doesn't have a, uh, a, uh, a monopoly on that, but there are plenty of religious kooks. Uh, there are secular kooks. There are smart kooks, dumb kooks. There are people, a lady came up to me the other day and she had a, a white piece of paper. Michael, you like this one. And she said, what do you see in it? And I looked in and I said, well, I don't see anything. And she goes, well, I see Jesus and started crying and left. I'm going, okay, you know, fine. Uh, <laughs> good for you. You matter, and you're not an accident. I think this is just such a fundamental principle that we need to recognize that our self-worth, our value is innate. Uh, whether you believe in God or not, whether you see yourself as a spiritual person or not, uh, we can recognize the miracle it is to exist within this universe, to be where we're at within the circumstances we're in, where we're given opportunities within our own personal context to contribute back to the world. So as we ask ourselves, really, what's our grander purpose? Is it just to go to work, come home, uh, watch TV or read a book or whatever, go to sleep and do it all over again, over and over and over again? Is that really our sole purpose? And of course, that's not our purpose. And the fact that so many people ask that question and so many people dip into uh, depression and uh, anxiety, have anxiety um, challenges uh, and such uh, related to their isolation and connected to uh, their disconnection from purpose, uh, it's, it's really important that we continue to recognize our value. Our value is not dictated based on what we have, what job we have, uh, how much stuff we have, how much money we have. Uh, it's not dictated on how we compare to our neighbors. Uh, it, it really comes back to, are we living our truth, our purpose? Are we doing the most with what we've been given uh, with the con within the context that we're in? And when we can recognize our talents and our gifts and we can maximize those and use those to lift and strengthen and uphold others, 
then our life has new meaning, new purpose. And uh, when we have that purpose, we will do better work. We'll be better for our uh, family and friends. And ultimately, uh, it's, it's an upward spiral when we have purpose. When the book became the best-selling book in the world for the last three years, uh, I kind of had my little crisis. And that was, what is the purpose of this? Because it brought in enormous amounts of money. When you write the best-selling book in the world, it's tons and tons of money. And uh, it brought in a lot of attention, neither of which I wanted. When I started Saddleback Church, I was 25 years old. Um, I started it with one other family and, uh, in 1980. And I decided that I was never going to go on TV because I didn't want to be a celebrity. I didn't want to be a, quote, evangelist, televangelist. Uh, that's not my, my thing. And um, all of a sudden, it brought a lot of money and a lot of attention. I don't think... Now, this is a worldview, and I will tell you, everybody's got a worldview. Everybody's betting their life on something. You're betting your life on something. You just better know why you're betting what you're betting on. So everybody's betting their life on something. And um, when I, I uh, you know, made a bet, I, I happened to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. But everybody's got, and I believe in a pluralistic society, everybody's betting on something. And... Um, when I started the church, uh, you know, I had no plans to do what it's doing now. And then uh, when I wrote this book, and all of a sudden it just took off. And I started saying, now what's the purpose of this? Because as I, I started to say, I don't think you're given money or fame for your own ego ever. I, I just don't believe that. And when you write a book that the first sentence of the book is, it's not about you... <laughs> then when all of a sudden it becomes the best-selling book in history, you got to figure, well, I guess it's not about me. <laughs> That's kind of a no-brainer. So what is it for? And I began to think about what I call the stewardship of affluence and the stewardship of influence. See, I believe essentially leadership is stewardship. That uh, if you are a leader in any area, in business, in politics, in sports, in art, in academics, in any area, you don't own it. You are a steward of it. Uh, for instance, that's why I believe in protecting the environment. This is not my planet. It wasn't mine before I was born. It's not going to be mine after I die. I'm just here for 80 years, and, and that's it. It's not about us. It's about stewardship. I think this is a really important perspective when it comes to leadership and effectively working with people in our organizations. Uh, he shares the example of being a pastor who cares about environmental issues because of a sense of stewardship. He's willing to be humble and uh, and not get caught up in the wealth and the fame associated with his best-selling book uh, because for him it's about stewardship. It's about understanding what he's been given, how that's opened doors and created opportunity, leveraging that opportunity to benefit others as a steward, as someone who has a responsibility and a duty to give back and to lift those around him. I think that's what truly remarkable leaders do. They have that sense of humility. They, don't, they aren't ego-driven. Uh, and even when success comes, and it will come because they're, they are successful, because they, they are talented, they're driven, um, they care about people, they empower people, who in turn will help them to look good as a leader, um, success will come. 
But when success comes, they're not caught up in it in and of themselves. They recognize that the success comes because of their people. They remain humble and they remember stewardship and the importance of giving back. I, I, I was debating the other day on a talk show and a guy was challenging me and go, what's a pastor doing on protecting the environment? And I, I asked this guy, I said, well, do you believe that um, human beings are responsible to make the world a little bit better place for the next generation? Do you think we have a stewardship here to take the environment seriously? And he said, no. I said, no, you don't. I said, let me make this clear again. Do you believe that as human beings, I'm not talking about religion, uh, do you believe that as human beings it is our responsibility to take care of this planet and make it just a little bit better for the next generation? And he said, no, not any more than any other species. When he said the word species, he was revealing his worldview. And he was saying, I'm no more responsible to take care of this environment than a duck is. Well, now, I know a lot of times we act like ducks, but you're not a duck. You're not a duck. And you are responsible. That's my worldview. And so you need to understand what your world is, the, the, the worldview is. The problem is most people never really think it through. They never really, they never really uh, codify it or qualify it or quantify it and say, this is what I believe and this is why I believe what I believe. I don't personally have enough faith to be an atheist. But you may. You may. Your worldview, though, does determine everything else in your life because it determines your decisions. It determines your relationships. It determines your level of confidence. It determines, uh, really, everything in your life. What we believe, obviously, and uh, you know this, determines our behavior, and our behavior determines what we become in life. So all of this money started pouring in and all of this fame started pouring in and I'm going, what do I do with this? My wife and I first made five decisions on what to do with the money. We said, first, um, we're not going to use it on ourselves. I didn't go out and buy a bigger house. I I don't own a guest house. I still drive the same four-year-old Ford that I've driven. Uh, We just said we're not going to use it on us. The second thing was um, I I stopped taking a salary from the church that I I pastor. Third thing is I added up all that the church had paid me over the last 25 years, and I gave it back. And I gave it back because I didn't want anybody thinking that I do what I do for money. I don't. In fact, personally, I've never met a priest or a pastor or a minister who does it for money. I know that's the stereotype. I've never met one of them. Believe me, there's a whole lot easier ways to make money. Our worldview is what dictates so much in our lives, Uh, whether that's a religious worldview, a a political, socioeconomic, uh, some cultural worldview. Uh, We're we're all uh, influenced by a variety of different factors in creating our worldview. Uh, and, And regardless of what those particular factors are for you and what your beliefs are in relation to them, those those views then indicate uh, and and drive how you are going to behave and act and respond to those around you. So he's not advocating for any particular worldview. He's he's very clear about what his worldview is. Um, 
But regardless of what your worldview is, you need to understand what it is, why you believe it, uh, why you you follow that worldview, and why you behave according to it. And that self-understanding will then help you to be in a better position to uh, dictate your own path moving forward. So whether it's a religious or spiritual kind of a worldview, it's a, it's a politically driven worldview, that ultimately has uh, implications for your relationships. It has implications for what, how you're going to spend your time and your resources. And uh, I know for me, my uh, really foundational worldview is one of uh, valuing all individuals, inclusivity, uh, dignity and respect for all, fairness, equity, inclusion. Um, and that is driven in part out of um, some of my religious and spiritual um, beliefs. Uh, and it certainly influences some of my political um, beliefs. Uh, but ultimately, uh, none of that is reliant on religion or politics or anything. It simply is what drives me and and that has implications for how I interact with my people, how I work, uh, how I lead, uh, how I work on projects, how I interact with my family, and uh, it, it really helps to to recognize and understand why it is I do what I do. When we understand why we do what we do, we're in a better position to leverage that uh, belief, that passion, to make a difference. Pastors are like on 24 hours a day call. They're like doctors. I left late today. I'd hoped to be here yesterday because my father-in-law is in his last probably 48 hours before he dies of cancer. And I'm watching a guy who's lived his life. He's now in his mid-80s. And he's dying with peace. You know, the test of your worldview is not how you act in the good times. The test of your worldview is how you act at the funeral. And having been through literally hundreds, if not thousands, of funerals, it, it makes a difference. It makes a difference what you believe. So um, we, we gave it all back to the back. And then we set up three foundations uh, working on some of the major problems of the world, illiteracy, poverty, um, pandemic diseases, particularly HIV, AIDS, and set up these three foundations and, uh, and put the money into that. The last thing we did is we became what I call reverse tithers. And that is when my wife and I got married 30, uh, 30 years ago, we, um, we started tithing. Now that's a, a principle in the Bible that says give 10% of what you get back to charity. Give, give it away to help other people. So we started doing that, and each year we would raise our tithe 1%. So the first year of marriage, we went to 11%. The second year, we went to 12%. And the third year, we went to, to 13%, and on and on and on. Why did I do that? Because every time I give, it breaks the grip of materialism in my life. Materialism is all about getting. Get, get, get. Get all you can, can all you get, sit on the can and spoil the rest. It's all about more, having more. And we think that the good life is actually looking good. That's most important of all. Looking good, feeling good, and having the goods. But that's not the good life. I meet people all the time who have those, and they're, they're not necessarily happy. 
If money actually made you happy, then the wealthiest people in the world would be the happiest. And that I know, personally I know, is not true. It's just not true. So the good life is not about looking good, feeling good, or having the goods. It's about being good and doing good. Giving your life away. Significance in life doesn't come from status, because you can always find somebody who's got more than you. It doesn't come from sex. It doesn't come from salary. It comes from serving. It is in giving our lives away we find meaning. We find significance. That's the way we were wired, I believe, by God. And so um, we began to give away, and, and now at, after 30 years, my wife and I are reverse tithers. We give away 90% and live on 10. So he and his wife give it all back. They give all the money back. They set up uh, charities and foundations uh, around important issues that connect with their worldview, that connect with uh, their, their passion and their sense of personal mission and calling um, to, to help those around them. And they give it back. I mean, that in and of itself is incredible. How many best-selling authors uh, donate all of their earnings? How many, uh, how many individuals earn back, or, uh, give back all of their uh, earnings in, from their job from throughout their career? Uh, that demonstrates a level of humility that I think is quite impressive. Um, and not to say that everyone needs to give back all their money. Um, and, and certainly uh, we need to take care of ourselves and our family. Um, but I, I do think it's inspiring to see someone with that kind of acclaim, that kind of wealth, uh, being willing to get past materialism and look at what really matters most uh, to bring happiness. Uh, he correctly indicates that uh, wealth, prestige, power, they don't correlate particularly well with happiness, joy. Uh, and there's so much research on this. And so if you want to live a fulfilled life, a happy life, a joyful life, uh, it's not about accumulating more stuff. In fact, oftentimes it's about ridding yourself of materialism. It's about giving back rather than taking and receiving. I'm excited to announce the publication of my new book from HCI Press, The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership, Ordinary Everyday Actions That Produce Extraordinary Results. Consider how the nature of work has shifted over the past 50 years. With increased globalization, rapid technological advancement, and the shift in economic composition, the average job of today looks very different than the average job of 50 years ago. What will the jobs and organizations of tomorrow look like? Moreover, what does this all mean for organizational leaders? What are the core competencies and capabilities of organizations and their leadership that are prepared for continued disruption and geopolitical and socioeconomic shifts? Regardless of what the future holds, increasingly, leaders need to be socially minded, data-driven, decisive, champions of talent, and disruptors of the traditional notions of leadership, teams, organizations, and work. The alchemy of truly remarkable leadership will help you to explore your own leadership competencies and capabilities and consider ways to apply and implement them into your workplace and personal life. I'm excited to share my insights with you.
That actually was the easy part. The hard part is what do I do with all this attention? Because I start getting all kinds of invitations. I just came off of a uh, nearly month-long speaking tour on three different continents. And uh, I won't go into that, but it was an amazing thing. And I'm going, what do I do with this, this, uh, this notoriety that the book has brought? And being a pastor, I, I started reading uh, the Bible. There's a chapter in the Bible called Psalm 72, and it, it's Solomon's prayer for more influence. When you read this prayer, it sounds incredibly selfish, self-centered. It sounds like uh, he says, God, I want you to make me famous. That's what he prays. He said, I want you to make me famous. I, I want you to spread the fame of my name through every land. I want you to, um, to give me power. I want you to make me famous. I want you to give me influence. And it, it just sounds like the most egotistical request you could make if you were going to pray. Until you read the whole psalm, the whole chapter. And then he says, so that the king, he was the king of Israel at that time, at its apex in power, so that the king may uh, care for the widow and orphan, support the oppressed, defend the defenseless, care for the sick, assist the poor, speak up for the foreigner, the, uh, the, 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 those in prison. Basically, he's talking about all the marginalized in society. And I, as I read that, I... I uh, looked at it and I thought, you know, what this is saying is that the purpose of influence is to speak up for those who have no influence. The purpose of influence is not to build your ego or your net worth. And by the way, your net worth is not the same thing as your self-worth. Your value is not based on your valuables. It's based on a whole different set of things. And... uh, so the purpose of influence is to speak up for those who have no influence. And I had to admit, I can't think of the last time I thought of widows and orphans. They're not on my radar. I pastor a church in one of the most affluent areas of America. There are a bunch of gated communities. I have a church full of CEOs and scientists. And I, I, I could go five years and never, ever see a homeless person. They're just not in my pathway. Now they're 13 miles up the road in Santa Ana. So I had to say, okay, I will use whatever affluence and whatever influence I've got to help those who don't have either of those. The purpose of influence is to speak up for those who have no influence. He shares a Bible story to illustrate this, but there are so many examples throughout literature, throughout history, throughout our own organizations, and probably within your own personal life. You can think of lots of examples of of something similar. Uh, It's about leveraging what we've been given to benefit others. Uh, And so the stewardship factor comes back in as he was relaying at the beginning of his TED talk that if we recognize our stewardship and our responsibility and duty to those around us that there's nothing wrong about having wealth there's nothing wrong about um, having power and prestige uh, about having influence in fact much of what we try to do is figure out how we can generate more influence the more influence we have the more opportunity we have to make an impact on the world so when we recognize that and we don't shy away from it but we own up to it and then we are willing to uh, have our life um, move forward with purpose towards that stewardship and having a vision 
for how we can leverage our influence uh, and not get caught up in the fame, not get caught up in the accolades, um, but really remain humble and focus back on our people, the people that we're meant to assist, to help, and to give voice to the voiceless. That's when we live a powerful and, and meaningful life. You know, there's a story in the Bible about Moses, whether you believe it's true or not, really doesn't matter to me, but uh, Moses, if you saw the movie The Ten Commandments, Moses goes out and there's this burning bush and God talks to him and God says, Moses, what's in your hand? I think that's one of the most important questions you'll ever be asked. What's in your hand? Moses says, it's a staff. It's a, it's a shepherd's staff. And uh, God says, throw it down. And if you saw the movie, you know, he throws it down and it, it, it becomes a snake. And Moses, and then God says, pick it up. And he picks it back up again and it becomes a, a staff again. Now I'm reading this thing and I'm going, what is that all about? Okay, what's that all about? Well, I do know a couple things. Number one, God never does a miracle to show off. It's not just, wow, isn't that cool? And, and by the way, my God doesn't have to show up on cheese bread. And if God's going to show up, you know, he's not going to show up on cheese bread. Okay? I just, this is why I love what Michael does. Because it's like, okay, if he's debunking it, then I don't have to. Uh, but God, my God doesn't show up on sprinkler images. Uh, he, he had a few more powerful ways than that to do whatever he wants to do. But uh, uh, he doesn't do miracles, just show off. Second thing is, if God ever asks you a question, he already knows the answer. Obviously, if he's God, then that would mean that uh, when he asks the question, it's for your benefit, not his. So he's going, what's in your hand? Now, what was in Moses' hand? Well, he was a shepherd's staff. Now, follow me on this. This staff represented three things about Moses' life. First, it represented his identity. He was a shepherd. It's the symbol of his own occupation. I am a shepherd. It's a symbol of his identity, his career, his job. Second, uh, it's a symbol of not only his identity, it's a symbol of his income because all of his assets are tied up in sheep. In those days, nobody had bank accounts or American Express cards or hedge funds. Your assets are tied up in your flocks. So it's a symbol of his identity, and it's a symbol of his income. And the third thing, it's a symbol of his influence. What do you do with a, a, a shepherd's staff? Well, you, you know, you move sheep from point A to point B with it, by hook or by crook. You pull them or you poke them, one or the other. So he's saying, you're going to lay down your identity. What's in your hand? You've got identity, you've got income, you've got influence. What's in your hand? And he said, if you lay it down, I'll make it come alive. I'll do some things you could never imagine possible. And if you've watched that movie, Ten Commandments, all of those big miracles that happen in Egypt are done through this staff. He shares another Bible example, this one of Moses and his staff. Um, and again, regardless of your own religious beliefs or perspectives, worldview, um, faith tradition, it doesn't really matter. Just looking at it as a story it has uh, important principles that are, I think we should consider. Um, throwing down our own identity, being willing to uh, let go of our own identity uh, and recognizing the, the power and strength that can come from humility. Uh, humility doesn't mean passive. It doesn't mean um, uh, being a doormat. 
but it means recognizing what you have and how that uh, influences your accountability and responsibility. Once we are willing to throw aside our ego and put aside our own uh, personal desires uh, for the benefit of others, uh, it's it's kind of one of the the, the world's greatest ironies. Um, but the more you give, the more you receive. The more you put others first, the more you get back. Uh, and and as you focus on others rather than yourself, it inevitably uh, gives you more purpose, more meaning, more joy, more happiness. Uh, rather than chasing more stuff, chasing more uh, accolades, ch- chasing the the uh, prestige and the the notoriety. Um, now, again, ironically, when we focus on others, uh, when we empower others as a leader, that will lead to greater performance, greater results, which actually will end up making us look good. So the notoriety will come, the success will come, um, but not because we're focused solely on it, but in fact, it'll come because we're not focused solely on it. And really, we don't need self-validation through those successes because we recognize and remember that we have worth in and of ourselves. Uh, and it's not about all of those other things. It's really about the relationships and the connections that we make and the, those we're able to benefit through our work. Last year, I uh, was invited to speak at uh, NBA All-Stars game. And so I'm talking to the, to the players and uh, because most of the NBA teams, NFL teams, and all the other teams have done this 40 Days of Purpose based on the book. And um, I asked them, I said, what's in your hand? I said, what's in your hand? I said, it's a basketball. And that basketball represents your identity, who you are. You're an NBA player. It represents your income. You're making a lot of money off that little ball. And it represents your influence. And even though you're only going to be in the uh, in NBA for a few years, you're going to be an NBA player the rest of your life. And that gives with you enormous influence. So what are you going to do with what you've been given? And I guess that's the main reason I came up here today to all of you very bright people at TED is to say, what's in your hand? What, what do you have that you've been given? Talent background, education, freedom, networks, opportunities, wealth, ideas, creativity. What are you doing with what you've been given? That, to me, is the primary question about life. That, to me, is what being purpose-driven is all about. In the book, I talk about how you're wired to do certain things. You're shaped with little acrostic, spiritual gifts, heart, ability, personality, and experiences. These things shape you. And if you want to know what you ought to be doing with your life, you need to look at your shape. What am I wired to do? Why would God wire you to do something and then have you do it? If you're wired to be an anthropologist, you'd be an anthropologist. If you're wired to be an underseas explorer, you'd be an underseas explorer. If you're wired to make deals, you make deals. If you're wired to paint, you paint. Did you know that God smiles when you be you? When my little kids, when my kids are little, they're all grown now, I have grandkids. I used to go in and sit on the side of their bed and I used to watch my kids sleep. 
And I just watched their little bodies rise and lower, rise and lower. I would look at them and go, this is not an accident. Rise and lower. And I got joy out of just watching them sleep. Some people have the misguided idea that God only gets excited when you're doing, quote, spiritual things like going to church or helping the poor or, you know, confessing or doing something like that. The bottom line is God gets pleasure watching you be you. Why? He made you. And when you do what you were made to do, he goes, that's my boy. That's my girl. You're using the talent and the ability that I gave you. So my advice to you is look at what's in your hand, your identity, your influence, your income, and say, it's not about me. It's about making the world a better place. Thank you. What's in your hand? What have you been given? What opportunities have you been afforded? What privileges do you have? How can you leverage all of those elements in your life in connection with your worldview to drive meaning and purpose and to benefit those around you? What's in your hand? How can you leverage those, those opportunities? Uh, and whether you view it as a blessing from God or you view it as um, just consequentialism and things that come about because of, of the good stuff that you've done in your life or you recognize your privilege and you, you understand that so much of what you have is due to you know, where you were born, how, how you were raised, the communities in which you live, um, race, color, ethnicity, gender, uh, those sorts of things, the systemic and demographic types of uh, privileges that we may or may not have, regardless of, of how we come to our understanding of what's in our hand and what our, our driving uh, fundamental worldview is, ultimately, if we can recognize what we have and we recognize a stewardship around that and a responsibility to benefit others through that, then that's really what's important. I don't really care what people think or believe. Uh, I don't really care what your dominant worldview is if it's a spiritual one, a religious one, a political one, uh, whatever. I don't care. What I do care about is how people treat others, how you behave, how you interact with your community, and how you leverage what you've been given to benefit those around you. As a leader within organizations, we have an opportunity to impact so many lives, um, certainly directly the lives of our people uh, that we work with that are on our team, but also their families and people within their communities. So indirectly, we impact a lot of people. We need to recognize that responsibility, not get overwhelmed by it, but live up to it. And when we do that, we will have meaning and purpose, joy and happiness. And that purpose-driven life is really what it's all about. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. As always, I hope you stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you have a great week. We are excited about the launch of HCI's new magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free interactive e-magazine designed to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches maximize their human capital potential. 
we will be publishing issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. Check out the first issue and let us know what you think. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week. Check out our new weekly LinkedIn newsletter, Alchemizing Human Capital, exploring industry trends via original research and interviews with executives and thought leaders from across the globe. We look forward to having you join us.